You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The book I expected to read would present all the ways in which human communities in the digital age are dealing with decentralized authority structures, how any given woman or man might jump on the internet either through a browser or a social media program or by some other means, and encounter half a dozen figures all competing for status as authorities on the, que- on the question at hand, disagreeing with each other not on marginal matters, but on the most important, most central parts of the public policy or scientific finding or political tension at hand. The book I expected to read would look at all that and warn me about the dangers of a post-truth world. Peter K. Fallon takes a look at the same stew of unstable sources and says, how cool is that? His new book, Propaganda 2.1 from Cascade Books, draws from the rightly renowned examinations of Jacques Ellul and then launches forward, never denying the dangers of citizenship in an internet context, but also looking at the genuinely good possibilities that emerge in that context. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Fallon to the show. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. I'm, I'm glad to be here. How we can get to the... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. By the way, I mean, how dangerous is it as well? I mean, I'm not denying the danger involved in Propaganda 2.1, but there's a certain... It is, it is a cool situation to be in. Indeed, indeed. And we will get to all of that. But first, I want to start our conversation with your working definition of propaganda, because a lot of people think that a certain motivation lies behind propaganda or a certain kind of duplicity lies behind propaganda. But in your book, what differentiates propaganda from other kinds of language is neither truth value nor rhetorical devices, but the audience. So in our talk today and in this book, what does that noun propaganda mean? Well, it's uh, it's complicated and um, it, it may seem like an arbitrary choice I made to define propaganda in a particular way, but it's only because our, uh, our commonly accepted definition of propaganda is too limited. Propaganda is often manipulation. Propaganda is often uh, use of biased terms. Propaganda is often not stating certain premises and emphasizing others to make a particular point that isn't the necessary point to make. It can be all of those things that it often is. Um, Persuasion as an art form goes back 2000 years, right? And we've spent 2000 years looking at propaganda as only messages, as per- persuasive messages. And that kind of rhetorical analysis of messages remains useful. But if we, if we limit ourselves to seeing only that the use of, of, uh, of baiting people and, 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 and manipulating them and, and, and creating false arguments, then we're limiting ourselves. Propaganda, what I call propaganda 2.0, propaganda 1.0 is everything going back to Aristotle. And it remains with us. Propaganda 2.0 really began in the uh, 15th century with the development of movable type printing and the uh, creation of mass audiences. And it's not that 
<laughs> it's not that an entire mass was persuaded, but that some chunk of the mass, Catholics, for instance, were persuaded that the other chunk of the mass, uh, uh, reformists in the church, were telling lies, were um, spreading heresies. Um, and in the absence of any kind of certainty about who has the truth, all we're left with is finger pointing about you're telling propaganda, you're telling propaganda, missing the point that all of a sudden it becomes possible to corral people, to, to, to gather them under a set of ideas in, at the level of the mass. Um, propaganda 2.1 is the deconstruction of propaganda 2.0. It's, it's, it's the age we're in now and the, the development of decentralized digital technologies that allow everybody or anybody to be a creator and disseminator of information. And sometimes on a very large scale, even on the scale of the mass. I and, want to back up just a little bit a, before we... Production, that's a cool thing. Yeah, I, I want to back up just a little bit before we get into the internet age, because unlike a lot of our uh, unexamined terms, I'm going to call them that, propaganda doesn't begin as a term of abuse like so many do, uh, but it begins as, you know, an official endeavor of the Catholic Church. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, prop the propaganda there in the, uh, you know, the age of the 16th century, 17th century, roughly speaking, uh, was simply an, an effort, pardon me, uh, to get certain teachings out to masses of people to counter what was happening on the reformist side, like you said. So uh, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, roughly speaking in historical terms, when and where does propaganda become a term of abuse? Um, I don't know. I don't know. All right, that's all right. That's all right. I know that by 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 the 18th century, people are using it as a term of abuse. I'm not exactly sure when it started, um, but when you have uh, when you've broken down uh, the the reality of God to two sides, and the two sides are incompatible, they're each going to start yelling propaganda at each other. Um, I can't hear you anymore, by the way. Oh, no, that's all right. That's all right. I'm muted. I'm muted. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I guess the reason that I'm curious is that if it begins as a self-identification, but only later becomes, um, like you said, a term of abuse, uh, you know, it seems to me that uh, any kind of mass communication, um, even if it doesn't begin as... Uh, uh, let me put it this way. Even if we don't start out suspicious of it, there is something about mass communication that people get suspicious of so that the name that used to just apply to mass co mass communication generally uh, becomes a name for deceptive mass communication. Does that make some sense? Uh, yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to I don't have it here. I have it in my bookshelf downstairs. Elizabeth Eisenstein. Just 2013. It's nine yep. years old, this book. Elizabeth Eisenstein's Divine Art, Infernal Machine. 
Um, it, it's a wonderful read. If even if you're not a history buff, uh, but it it talks about this kind of uh, profound ambivalence that people had as soon as the printing press uh, was established. Some people thought it was a gift from God, and other people thought it was you know Satan had created it to to roil the waters of of uh, of the Christian conception of reality. Um, science, science was not, science was frowned upon by the church. Um, um, I'm here, and here my, my COVID brain fog is, is coming in. Um, you know, we could, we could list all, all of the, uh, late medieval and Renaissance and enlightenment scientists and philosophers who ended up on the index librorum um, or worse. So, I mean, there's, there's something, there's, some, there's, there's power in mass communication and power always threatens established power. That makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Now, the book's second chapter, I'm going to leave for our readers to take in when they get a hold of a copy of your book. And, and listeners, you are going to go get, get a hold of the copy of this book. But I do want to give you a chance to highlight a point or two as you see fit. What are one or two important historical moments in the 19th and 20th centuries that are going to set up the examination that Jacques Ellul brings into our conversation? Um. <clears throat> There are many, there are many, but I, you know, in, in thinking about your question, uh, the, the two probably most significant ones were uh, the rise of the social sciences in the late 19th century and um, uh, including psychology and, and crowd psychology and mass psychology. Um, and then in the 20th century systems theories um, and and that and that's not an arbitrary choice. Um, my my field, which is known as media ecology, looks at the interaction between cultures and their systems of mass communication. Cultures, not just as a mass, but as individuals within a culture, and and how our our tools shape our thinking and our behavior. Um, and systems theories and media ecology mesh very, very well. Uh, so those are the two uh, significant developments of the late 19th and early to mid 20th centuries. Yeah, and listeners, I do want you to know that uh, when I was looking over my notes, preparing uh, you know, the, the draft of the interview notes, uh, I realized that I could probably talk for an hour and a half just on that second chapter, but we're not going to do that today. We're going to make it an hour long podcast and we're going to change to uh, chapter three because it's a brief chapter, but in my view, it sets up some of the big concepts that make sense of the rest of the book. So one distinction that, that emerges in chapter three uh, and one that I recognize from my own education is this distinction between open systems and closed systems. Um, now what you're going to say is that, you know, although my education emphasized the difference between open and closed systems, what they share in common might actually be more important. And those commonalities are, they both tend towards homeostasis and they both tend towards adaptation. 
Now, why are homeostasis and adaptation so important for studying propaganda? Um, because societies change, because people hold power, um, and people holding power are jealous of that power. But the people who are being controlled by those in power also have power if they if they realize that they do um, <clears throat> and so something has to something has to main, maintain stability the home, homeostasis and something has to be able to at moments of uh, um, what appear to be potential critical change to to shape that change in a particular way like in in the least bad way or if you get lucky in the most opportune way. Um, this, this is central to, uh, to systems. And uh, Norbert Wiener and other of the uh, cyberneticists um, uh, realized that every, every system, including human cultures and societies, must have a feedback system that lets those in control know when change is coming. And so then to direct that change, to govern that change in a way that the entire system doesn't collapse. Systems do collapse. Um, but I, I, I think the, the whole idea of uh, uh, closed and open systems fits well when thinking about the idea of propaganda. And, and propaganda 2.0 was one of, and I'm speaking as though it's in the past tense, um, it's still with us, it's still with us, but, uh, but some of its power has been uh, diluted to a certain extent. But Propaganda 2.0 was a system of maximum control. That, by the way, there's, there's three types of systems. There's closed systems, open systems, and then what they call isolated systems, which are very, very rare. And in fact, physicists can't find any evidence of them in nature. So it, it's more like a, a it's more like a theoretical construct, except it's something like an an insulated vessel with a tight fitting lid is close to our idea of uh, a, a, of an isolated system, like a thermos, um, where neither matter nor energy can be exchanged with the external environment. I, I think Propaganda 2.0 was, was something between a closed system and an isolated system, where, where the, the only thing that's moving is what was moving when it was put into the pot and the lid was put on it. Um, no influences from outside, uh, uh, no energy from inside gets out. Uh, so that's why I think that um, that's a, a, a useful metaphor. And it is a metaphor. It is a metaphor, of course. Sure. It's a metaphor from the world of physics, right? And I want to add one more metaphor, and that is the precise technical definition that you, pr that you present for the noun information. Uh, usually when I think of information, I think of, uh, you know, data tables. I think of dictionary definitions. Uh, but in media ecology, information has a very precise idea behind it. 
what is that idea? Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it, this didn't arise in, in, in uh, media ecology, but again, from in uh, information theory. Um, and it, there's, it's, there's not a simple answer to this question. And again, our common, our common use of the term uh, suggests that information is just what you're talking about. Uh, databases and data sets and um, things that we can look up, uh, things that are set there and we can find them. But in information theory, organized, patterned bits of data, again, you're organizing and you're closing your system, you're reinforcing the information, you're amplifying the information that already exists. Um, but that ceases at some point to be information. If someone tells you something that you already know, it's not information. So you, you have to encounter something that's alien, that doesn't make sense to you, that looks like nonsense. And try to find the sense in it, then you've got information. Uh, Gregory Bateson, the psychologist, and my God, the polymath, he was everything. He, he called, um, his uh, definition of information was a difference that makes a difference. When you can find a pattern in something that looks chaotic and nonsensical, you're onto something. That's an idea that you should think about. And, and the more that we just remain enclosed in this environment of familiar information, we don't learn anything new. Yeah, that much makes sense. That much makes sense. All right. So now that we got some of those terms in place, um, Read our listeners, I'm just going to tell you that the fourth chapter of this book that really digs into the ideas of Jacques Ellul, uh, it alone uh, is worth uh, the price of the book. I, uh, I read Jacques Ellul's propaganda book uh, years ago. And uh, as I read, you know, Peter's uh, summary of it and, you know, really his explanation of it, uh, you know, brought me back to, you know, some of those revolutionary ideas. But we are going to talk about a couple of these ideas here. Um, First of all, you know, just before we get to those ideas, I mean, you know, who is Jacques Ellul? I mean, does he come from the early days of information theory? Is he a social scientist? Is he a philosopher? Is he a theologian? Uh, who, is, who is this person and what leads him to write, you know, what is, I would say, the, uh, you know, the, the seminal book on propaganda? It is, and and Elul is a, a fascinating uh, a fascinating character, um, brilliant. I think one one of one of the most important unknown thinkers, largely unknown, of of the twentieth century, uh, um, uh, a French um, basically uh, farm boy growing up who uh, was uh, raised in um, uh, a, his, his father, uh, Elul said, was a Voltairian. Um, his mother was uh, Protestant, but 
not devout. He he didn't go to church, um, and he spent part of his uh, teenage years as a, an atheist and a Marxist. Uh, he read Marx. He 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 devoured Marx. Um, and at some point, there was this transformation. He, um, I, I don't know that this had anything uh, uh, to do with the transformation, but he did uh, not fight, but he, he assisted the French underground um, uh, during World War II and the uh, Nazi occupation of France. He, he helped people escape is basically what he did. Uh, but it was it was after the war that he uh, rediscovered his uh, his Christianity. He went on to become um, um, and and this surprised me because in college and in graduate school I had read the Technological Society and I had read the propaganda and I thought he was he was a sociologist and but and I thought that that's all he was and then I discovered. In the 1980s, just accidentally, I was I was in a, a wonderful bookstore at the time, the Barnes and Noble Annex on on 18th Street in Manhattan, and this was like a big. It was like you know at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, that warehouse was huge, just filled filled with books, and I came across this book called. Um, its early translation was called The Presence of the Kingdom. Its newer translation by Lisa Richmond is a one, wonderful book presence of the modern world. And I started reading this book and I, I said, wait a second, this is, this is, this is theology he's talking about. This, this is a book about God. And yet at the same time, in 1948, you could see, uh, what's the word, foreshadowing of both the technological society and propaganda. He was, he was dealing with these themes of Distraction from reality, alienation from the self, uh, uh, um, uh, too much time spent in idle amusement, um, fo you know, focusing on the ch the challenges that the physical world imposes on us. And at the same same time, losing the sense of grace of the lived moment. Uh, it was just the most fascinating book I've ever read. And in fact, uh, you know, I have all of the books, uh, all those books that I've read, and I believe I've read all of them uh, that have thus far been been translated into English, uh, because I'm an American and I only speak one language. Um, of all of his books, I think I think uh, uh, Presence of the Kingdom remains my favorite. Very very challenging book. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I you know when I read him, uh, I think someone had introduced him to me as a, a Catholic thinker, and so you know I just kind of read the theology into propaganda and saw it as you know okay this is uh, you know someone who is very much a personalist in that Catholic tradition. And is suspicious of things that treat people as masses rather than as persons. Uh, so it's interesting that you know uh, other readings of it. I guess I'll put it that way. Yeah, don't I, go I, that direction. I have, I have to point out that, I, and I think it's because of someone made a mistake in, in in an early edition. One of the people that got to blurb uh, the back of, uh, I believe it's 
the Technological Society. Uh, identified Elul as a Catholic thinker, and he wasn't. He he was he was he was part of the Reformed Church, and in fact, he had he was a pastor for a while. So his um, his uh, theology is. Um, I've read some Catholic theology as as well. His theology is is not at all Catholic. Oh, interesting. Okay, and see, I for whatever reason, someone introduced him that way. I'm I'm that here lately. I'm discovering that figures I thought were Catholic were actually Protestant. I uh, just learned that about George Lindbeck recently. So that <laughs> this is a fascinating stuff. Well, taking on Elul's ideas, then um, let's. Let's start out with, uh, you know, the idea of his notion of, of propaganda. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is, once again, uh, propaganda is only secondarily a function of the motives of individual actors putting messages out into the world. It's a far more pervasive, a far more social kind of, of reality. So talk a little bit about what Elul means when he writes the word propaganda. Yeah, well, again, <clears throat> and it's interesting. You know, the, the book is is widely regarded, uh, a, a, as you said, as, you know, uh, the authoritative source on, on propaganda. And yet, while he mentions the fact that there are techniques of propaganda, he never specifically mentions any of them. The book is entirely about the consolidation of power over the means of communication the means of the creation and, and distribution of messages. Um, you know, now he breaks propaganda down into uh, uh, many different categories. And, and he, you know, he tells us that there's not just propaganda, but there's this thing he calls pre-propaganda, which happens largely in the home and in schools where you, where you internalize uh, the values for better or for worse of the culture. You learn about things like hard work and competition and um, all of that stuff. Uh, you, you're, 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 you're brought into the idea of the nation as a family. All of these things are, and, and you learn how to read. You learn how to read because reading and the printing press, they're the, they're like the, they're the gateway drug to propaganda. You have to, it's one of the interesting things that, that Alul says. Um, everybody thinks I'm educated. I know a lot. Uh, therefore, I'm too smart to be prop propagandized. It only works on the ignorant or the ill-informed. And no, he says that a, a, a common um, shared equal distribution of education is a prerequisite to propaganda. You can't propagandize uh, an ignorant group. Um, it, and, and that's not a literal statement. <laughs> it's a, I, I was looking at your questions and at some point we're gonna have to deal with um, uh, paradox. There's paradox in a lull because you can propagandize an ignorant, a disenfranchised uh, group living on the fringes of society, but that's gonna be agitation propaganda. That's gonna be the propaganda that goes against the dominant narrative of propaganda 
that works on the rest of us. Um, so there's propaganda in all flavors uh, and all sizes and propaganda for every taste. Um, and each of, them, each of them is gonna have its own set of techniques. His point is that it's impossible to escape in a mass culture like ours in, in what he called the technological society. It's impossible to insulate yourself from it. You're always surrounded by propaganda. And and this reminds me of, and you know, unfortunately, you know, my my mind immediately goes to thinkers that are associated with national socialism, but it seems like it's a more pervasive fascination there in the sort of early mid-20th century with sort of peasant society as something that hasn't been co-opted by by mass communication. Uh, and you know, of course, I'm thinking of you know Martin Heidegger's fascination with you know peasants as people who are living uh, you know somehow a a life that is more authentic than sort of modern you know polite society. Um, is is this a is this a common concern that he shares with Ilul, or am I misreading the the am I am I positing a common thread where no common thread connects? Um, I you know. I'm going to try to answer your question. I'm, I have, I just have a sense that I'm not going to answer your question, but um, I believe it was Isaiah Berlin uh, uh, wrote um, a book called um, the uh, about the 19th century. It was called the Age of Ideology, um, and ideology ideologies were the offspring of print. Um, the 19th century really was, and going into the 20th century, uh, uh, the, the age of uh, uh, nationalism and the age of, of uh, Marxism, the age of capitalism, we really started, um, people started crystallizing around each of these ideas and the ideologies were at war with one another. And propaganda was a tool to pit ideology against ideology. Um, and, and as I said, you know, and, and, and that's a very much, that's very much a propaganda 2.0 thing. Um, but in, in, by the time we get to the, the 20th century, while that, that, while that doesn't go away, we add to the newspaper, cinema, telephone, telegraph, Newspapers are now connected. Local newspapers uh, essentially cease to exist. They're now connected to the rest of the country and the rest of the world uh, by telegraph. Um, um, wire, news wire services appear. We start learning in Bar Harbor, Maine about what's going on in San Francisco, California. Uh, as as, uh, as uh, Thoreau said, whether we need to know or not, we're connected now. Um, when you started in Maine, somehow I knew you were going to mention Thoreau. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Um, <clears throat> and then you know we, we add to that television in the in, in the middle of the late the the late part of the first half of the twentieth century. Um, and it's uh, life starts to 
to become no longer about ideology, but about attention. The, the, the power now is concerned with profit. The power now is concerned with uh, attracting audiences. And um, the old ideologies don't, don't disappear. They just become more or less irrelevant. They sink in, into the background. Um, interesting point and and by the way and i think what we're, what what we've been seeing since well the turn of the millennium and the rise of these new digital technologies we're seeing ideologies find a home and try, trying to create like an ideological uh, 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 renaissance when I heard that Bernie Sanders, whose career I've followed since the 1980s, when I heard that Bernie Sanders was running for president, I laughed. I said, that would be a wonderful thing. I said, there's no way. There's no way that this is possible. It can't happen. It goes against everything a little wrote about. It was actually during this period that, that this book, this book started to be exactly what everybody thinks it was. Beware, beware of information that you get from these alternative media. And then I, I, I started saying, this is, this is unbelievable. There, there are democratic socialists in our country. And I just didn't know it. No, nobody seemed to know it. Nobody saw them. Nobody heard them through our mass media. They're, they're blocked out of the system. And, and now all of a sudden, there's this, this resurgence. The, the flip side of that is that there's also this resurgence of white supremacy and white nationalism and all of these other nasty things that if, if you have one, you have to have the other. Um, so, and this is not in my book, but <laughs> I, I have to tell you that if you, if you believe in democracy, if you believe in democratic principles, then you have to have them. If, if you're sure that democracy and um, the, the, the free market of ideas, that a, a, the power of a good idea will always be a bad idea, then you've, you've got to have this. You've, you've got to have this. I want to follow up on that because, you know, this is one of the things that I've certainly heard, uh, you know, I'll just say since 2015, just to use that as a, an arbitrary benchmark, uh, is that, you know, in radio, especially in television, especially in those propaganda 2.0 media, especially, um, I've heard a lot of prominent voices uh, use the noun democracy to mean the kinds of norms uh, that, you know, you write about as being enforced by propaganda 2.0. Uh, at the expense of these marginal, um, I mean, ideologies. I mean, let's use, use that word, right? Uh, you know, I mean, in your view, uh, you know, and, you know, obviously our readers will get a lot of this from your book, but I mean, uh, why is it that the radio and television and the more one-way propaganda 2.0 figures, why is it that they 
are so eager to reclaim or I guess to usurp the noun democracy, even though the way that you just described it, it seems to be exactly the opposite of what they're describing. Because, um, and, and, and here now, you know, I could go back to propaganda 1.0 and, and bring some rhetorical analysis into it. I mean, because it's a symbol, like the American flag is a symbol, the word democracy is a symbol. The, you know, the, the, the fact that in the last 40 or so years, we've drained that word democracy of almost all of its meaning, it's still a powerful symbol. And so, yeah, they refer to our, our political system as, as it exists right now as, as democratic, um, small d, democratic. Um, and, and this at the same time that, you know, one of the great ironies, I think, uh, of, of our time, that this time that we're living in right now, is that the 2015-16 Republican primary race was actually more democratic than the Democratic primary. The, the, the Republican leadership was scared out of their pants by Donald Trump. This guy is a loose cannon. He's gonna, you know, but people voted for him. And, and you know what? People actually did vote for him. He, he won that nomination. He, he won the delegates. Um, and on the other side, the Democratic primary, I, I hope that nobody needs to be convinced of this at this point. I mean, there's so much documentation. The, this was a rigged primary. They From the start, Hillary Clinton believed she deserved this, the Democratic leadership agreed with her, and they were doing anything that they could, and some really, some nasty stuff, uh, to keep Bernie Sanders from being the, the nominee. So how do you talk about Democratic values when the party that calls itself Democratic is clearly not Democratic? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, it's become another, it's, it's a shibboleth, you know? I mean, it's, it's just something you need to say to get into people's doors and, 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 and give your sales pitch. Yeah, I mean, what it reminds me of more than anything is uh, Kenneth Burke's work and uh, Richard M. Weaver's work on uh, ultimate terms is the, is the phrase that they use, that uh, as soon as you can establish in conversation that this is for the sake of God in the Middle Ages or for the sake of progress in the 19th century, or for the sake of democracy in the 21st century, uh, then really any arguments against it seem like they have to be intrinsically bad arguments because they are striving against what is the ultimate term. Uh, so, uh, you know, what, what strikes me about that is that, uh, you know, propaganda 2.1, as you describe it, uh, is a place where those ultimate terms are up for grabs in a way that they simply aren't in propaganda 2.0 environments. And, and we should remind listeners at this point, you said it a number of times already, that we're not talking about a simple uh, chronological progression here. Uh, propaganda 2.0 and Propaganda 2.1, as you, as you call them, um, they are living side by side, really, I mean, I would say since the days of Usenet, uh, but far more prominently in the last 
you know, let's say 25 mid nineties to the present day scheme. So, you know, in, in that context, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but now I'm now, now I'm uh, <laughs> pontificating, but go, go uh, right ahead. It's fine. But, but, but one of the things that I like most about this book, and, the, and like I said, because this book shattered every expectation I had on page one, I enjoyed it more and more as I kept turning pages. Uh, but you make a turn towards the end of this book uh, towards, I mean, what I think Aristotle would call intellectual virtue. Uh, that, I mean, education can't simply be uh, a matter of facts and of dates and of algorithms and so on and so forth. But there have to be certain dispositions that education needs to build if we're going to have something that we that that we really should call democracy. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, what are those dispositions? What kinds of education do we need when propaganda 2.0, propaganda 2.1 are living in the same media ecosystem? Yeah, and you know, you've you've already uh hit the nail on the head as far as I'm concerned. It's it's all about uh, education. It's and it's all about education from the earliest ages, and I don't like to use the term uh, media literacy because I think it's another slogan that has no meaning, and I think was actually invented by um, some market researchers uh, to 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 make us feel better about losing our actual literacy. Um, but some sort of media education, some sort of deconstruction of messages, of power structures. I mean, from the, the very earliest ages, um, dismantle the system of education that we have now that a little calls pre-propaganda that makes us uh, little conformists. Um, little machines programmed to move and behave in a particular way and to spit out words and sentences that someone expects to hear. Um, we need students to learn how to question. Um, Neil Postman, I believe it was in his book, The End of Education, talked about uh, a new um, um, educational form that that focused specifically on questions and not on answers um yeah that was the end of education i, I read that one about 25 years ago as well <laughs> yeah um and you know the, one of the things that um even even in propaganda 2.1 in 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 our current in the presence of this information environment this is this is not talked about enough is that uh, uh, neuroscientific research over the last 20 years or so which i've been paying close attention to and i um referred to it in my book the metaphysics of media uh about 12 years ago um the the reading brain is a uniquely human phenomenon. It is the reading brain structures our thought in such a way as to put things to a test of truth and falsehood. 
propositional statements are either true or they're false. And the more we read, the more we form and mold and, yeah, for lack of a better word, program the synaptic pathways that allow for that kind of critical reasoning. Is this what I'm reading right now? Is it true or is it false? I can find out. If I can find evidence one way or the other, I'll have a better idea. Uh, this is a reading brain. Uh, 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 human brains nurtured on images and because it's in the nature of images to, to seem real. They, they, they appear to be what they appear to be. Uh, and, and you can question them, but not until you shift into a propositional mode of thought. Right. It has to be propositional commentary upon the image, not the image itself. Right. But we've got to wire our brains in the first place to, to be critical, to be skeptical, to be questioning people. And so, you know, I think this has to start at the earliest, earliest ages. Students have to read, 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 and it doesn't matter what they read. They can read novels, they can read history. I'd like them to read a lot more history than they do, and maybe even learn a little geography um, <laughs> while they're at it. But, but reading, by its very nature, is, is gonna, it's, it's gonna create and nurture these thought processes that allow us to be critical thinkers later. Um, then, as adults, we have to take responsibility for and not just be um, free riders on a society in a society of, uh, of, of amusement. We have to take critical responsibility for our own citizenship, for our own place in the world. And if democracy, by the way, if democracy is to have any meaning at all, we have to get involved in, in, in politics ourselves, not necessarily to run as a candidate, but to canvas for a candidate, to, you know, to, 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 to work at the polls during voting days, you know, um, and, and to write letters. When you're not happy about something, don't scream at the television or, 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 or crumple your copy of the New York Times, write letters. Um, let, let me follow up on that, because one of the things that I, I often have conversations with my at, at this point, it's former students about uh, because the the students who are currently in my classroom, I mean, tend towards social networks like uh, Instagram and Snapchat that are far more um, that are far smaller circles. I'll put it that way. But the social media like Facebook, the social media like Twitter are still limited to those people who have voluntarily added you to their circles of influence. And, you know, it just strikes me that, uh, you know, that letter writing that you're talking about uh, is engaging with editorial centers, if you will, in ways that Twitter and Facebook don't. Uh, is, that, is, that, is that too strong a distinction there, or is that a real distinction that our, our listeners should think about? I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Nathan, I, I'm not sure I followed that question. Well, well, so for instance, let me give an example. Uh, you know, when my former students, and at this point, you know, I'm thinking of my former students in their 30s, uh, you know, post on Facebook that, you know, uh, the governor of Georgia is doing terrible things. Uh, first of all, uh, the only people who see that are people who have added them as contacts. 
And second of all, a lot of those folks who disagree with them politically have already unfollowed them so that, you know, they're not even seeing it. Whereas, I mean, if you do write letters to congressmen, to senators, to the New York Times, to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it strikes me that that has the potential, at least, uh, to make a public difference in a way that a social media post, because that's only going out to your immediate circles, doesn't really have. Is that is that a worthwhile distinction, or am I creating yeah, no. a, a distinction where we don't need one? No, I, I, I absolutely absolutely agree with you but even more so than you know writing letters to editors uh writing to your congressional representatives writing to your local representatives showing up at, at town hall meetings uh, uh protesting on the streets bad policies um we have voices you know, we hopefully we have something to contribute to a discussion, and we should be doing more of that. You, you're, you're right about. I mean, this it, the social media. They're they're good amplifiers. If you can get a message out there that's shared by someone with a, a thousand followers, and that's shared by you know one of their followers by another with another thousand followers that's that's an amplification system but no one alone like when i post things on on uh, on, on facebook by by the way i'm on instagram but i can't figure out what it's for i have no me neither me neither <laughs> i have no idea what you do with instagram <laughs> I, I i i tell my current students i'm just too old for instagram <laughs> yeah i mean you know like when i say something in my voice on Facebook, um, you know, I it it may get fifty or sixty likes and a couple of shares. Um, I, I'm not fooling myself uh, about the 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 power of any given individual uh, using social media. Um, it's it's more when when we act as. Um, amplifiers or you know repeaters in an in electronic sense you know repeating the signal um uh, which by the way this is not to say that i haven't posted things that that if not went viral they came, became very very close you know where hundreds of people uh reshared it um but that's that's pretty rare um but yeah if you write a letter to your senator or your congressional representative or the mayor of your village, somebody's going to read it. And hopefully the, the right people will read it. And then if enough people do that, if enough people are writing, griping to their representatives, we can hope for some kind of change. All right. Here at the end, I want to circle back to one of the distinctions that rides all the, all the way through this book. Uh, and I think it's a it's a good commentary in the converse, conversation we just had now had. Uh, one of the ideas that really stuck with me in this book is that propaganda, in the way that Jacques Ellul writes about it, in the way that you write about it, is a matter of means before it's a matter of ends. Uh, so whether someone is doing good things or bad things with it, it is still in that atmospheric environmental sense, propaganda. Um, when we're talking about the public life, the political life, when we're talking about life as citizens, 
why is that inversion of means and ends important? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, in, in fairness, while I agree wholeheartedly, this is not my idea. This this comes directly from a lull. Um, proliferating means always results in the focus on the means rather than the ends of, of our actions. We do things more and more because we can do them. Um, um, we have the technology to do such and such, therefore we will do such and such. And by the way, um, you know, uh, a guy who, who um, has, has a brief appearance in the book, but, but plays a big part in this whole process was Edward Bernays. And he kind of invented the idea of getting rid of ends and replacing them with means. The means satisfy us at this point. If we can do something, we will do it. Um, you know, building, building houses with mu music rooms, not because everybody plays a piano, but because if you have a music room, you're more likely to buy a piano. Um, and you may never use it. You may have absolutely no talent, but a house with a music room, you have to put a piano in it. Um, we create things that nobody ever imagined that we needed, and then we market them and we create this artificial need. And the more we think about, uh, I, I have to have this, you know, the, the stronger that gets. Um, so that's really where, uh, and, and, and this, is, uh, this is one of the more powerful consequences of, of Propaganda 2.0 is that we, uh, you know, in a sense, we um, surrender part of our free will. Um, and and, and a, a, again, going back to a lull, this is not, um, this is not a determined consequence. There's always a choice involved. If we lose our free will, it's our choice to surrender. Right. We've surrendered it. It's not that someone has seized it from us and we willed otherwise. Yeah. And it all, you know, it, it all really comes from, and this is, this is, this is the greatest danger of uh, uh, at least propaganda 2.0. It can be a danger of propaganda 2.1, but it's absolutely a danger of uh, uh, propaganda 2.0 is that we find shortcuts around critical thought. The, the image, sometimes the word, more frequently the image, um, provides us with an invitation to use a means without really questioning, well, why? Why do we need this? Um, so that you end up, you end up, um, they're arresting homeless people for sleeping in parks in, in many cities in the United States. But when a new iPhone is introduced, there are hundreds of people sleeping in sleeping bags outside the Apple store so they can be the first ones in the store. Um, and nobody asks, well, what do you need this for? 
Um, and by the way, everyone will say to you, you don't have a smartphone? How can you not have a smartphone? You, you need it these days. Uh, so we've really kind of, uh, when you talk about a need, you really should be focusing on the ends of a decision, the ends of an action. But it's not, it's like, there's this thing that helps us do something and we must have it without regard to what the something is. Right, right. Well, Peter, we're coming up on the hour mark, and I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word today. What do you want our listeners thinking about Jacques Ellul, about propaganda, about media ecology, or about whatever else as we head for the door? The, the, the whole point of propaganda, and we see it most distinctly pronounced um, in Propaganda 2.0 is a kind of soft coercion. Uh, um, the power wants us to be in sync with their holding power. They want us to be in sync with the narrative that uh, they are providing us. Um, and many people I would say the vast majority of people go along with it um, and uh, live their lives. Some of them may even have a very comfortable and happy death, um, but they're giving something up. They're giving something up, whether they know it or not, they're giving up a piece of their humanity. And propaganda, 2.1 appears to us right now to be a very dangerous thing to many of us, to many of us, especially as we focus on uh, the threats. The, the, the story about the, the Chinese word for danger also means opportunity. Uh, um, I don't know, that story may be apocryphal. I have no idea. But, you know, we've got this sense that danger and opportunity go hand in hand. Um, if we only focus on the dangers of scary messages and, and messages that offend us and uh, messages that sound alien to our orientations, which was shaped by propaganda 2.0, then we're never going to see the opportunities that it gives us. Because, again, we do have power. We have power to act if, if, we're, if we're lucky and dedicated we have power to change things. Um, and so, you know, I think I was, I think I wrote this book as kind of like a message of hope for people who want to see change and not just change, but change for the better in our world and, and first and foremost in the United States. Um, and if future readers of this book can approach it in that spirit, I think that they will not walk away dissatisfied. Peter K. Fallon, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan, very much. I enjoyed it. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Propaganda 2.1, Understanding Propaganda in the Digital Age from Cascade Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. 
Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.